You can turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. <laughs> Finally, well, we made it. Made it out of chapter 8, and now we're on to chapter 9. Took us a little while, but uh, it was it worked and, and it was good. So we just want to this morning um, turn our hearts to God's word. And and you know the one thing that I'm reminded of whenever you come to the Bible that uh, this is a supernatural book. It's not a book you just pick up off the shelf and start reading uh, casually. Uh, sometimes you have to put your uh, brain in high gear. And uh, for the next three chapters, I would have to tell you that this is going to be challenging um, in a lot of different ways, because the truth that will be taught and through through God's Spirit and through His Word is uh, uh, there's a lot of, of doctrine in this this section, and it's almost seems disconnected. If you actually read the last verse of chapter eight. And then you jump all the way over to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It almost seems like Paul put this little thought in there of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Um, because he gets done, Romans chapter 8, talking about how secure we are in Christ and nothing can separate us and, and from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And it almost makes sense that he goes right into, I beseech ye, brethren, and tells us how to live. Um, but this is going to be an adventure. It's going to take us some time to get through this section of Scripture, but I know that uh, you're patient, and uh, you have to be, because um, you know you really be praying every week that God will give you wisdom to understand uh, the Scriptures that we're going through. Um, and so today, I want to start off kind of this chapter 9 with a message entitled, Cultivating a Burden for the Lost, because that's really um, what this text uh, is speaking to in a roundabout way. And uh, I'm going to show you that. You might be reading the first five verses here and say, where does he get that from? But we're, we're going to look at that together. But it's a fascinating portion of Scripture. And it's so fascinating that some people, when they write their commentaries, they literally stop at Romans chapter 8. And they say, okay, that's it. I'm not going to finish my commentary. Because it's, it's very dicey to work your way through chapter 9, 10, and 11. And um, I liked what um, James Montgomery Boyce writes about this section of Scripture. He says, in the 9th, 10th, and 11th chapters of Romans, we're dealing with a Christian philosophy of history. He says, it is a philosophy that we can ask a question, namely, what in the world is God doing? Or we can be a bit more precise and ask, what is God doing in world history? Or even, what is God doing with me? Where have I come from? Why am I here? Where and when am I going to die? And he goes on, he says, there's never been a more important moment in which to ask these questions because people in our day have lost not only the Christian answers to them, but even the hope of finding them. And he gives this illustration. I just want to read this for you. He says, The great art historian Erwin uh, Panofsky, in his book called Studies in Iconology, that's one you want to read, right? 
studies and iconology. Oh, that looks like a good read. This guy points out how to, he he says, uh, has pointed out how the figure of Father Time has changed in Western art history. In the ancient world, time was pictured positively. It was portrayed by symbols of speed and power and balance and fertility. But in our world, time is pictured as what? This aged old man with this blade in his hand representing death. And he has an hourglass. In other words, time is is pictured negatively. And his, he, he even calls time, time the destroyer. <laughs> and it traces, he traces it to our failure to find any genuine meaning either in world history or in our own personal histories. He, he relates it to somebody who's barking out uh, things at a, at a carnival, a carnival barker's cry. As the, the revolving wheel of fortune turns, round and round and round she goes. Where she stops, what? Nobody knows. Henry Ford actually had this view of history. He said, history is bunk. That's not the Christian view. Nor is it the teaching that we find here in the ninth chapter of Romans. It's not the Christian view because the Christian view is not negative. The Christian view is positive. The reason the Christian view of history is positive is because we see God at the beginning of history taking charge of it. We see the cross of Christ at the center of history, really giving our history meaning, you might say, And then we even see the return of Christ at the end of history, bringing it to this this triumphant conclusion. And see, for the Christian, time and history are, are, are are just pregnant with eternal meaning. They're not meaningless. And this is a very important uh, thing to understand as we come to this section of Scripture because it's also a very misunderstood section of Scripture. Uh, as I said, there are some commentaries that end at Romans chapter 8. <laughs> they refuse to go any further. Some, having looked at this section, basically said, well, Paul just put this parenthesis in there of chapter 9, 10, and 11. We don't know why he did it, but it was probably just an afterthought or something. Um, And really, it should just go from Romans chapter 8, as I said, to Romans chapter 12. Some people actually believe that. Uh, That's not the case, though, because it is part of the canon of Scripture. God wanted it right here where he put it. And so you can see the connection between Romans 8 at the end and Romans chapter 12, verse 1. But that doesn't mean that 11 or 9, 10, and 11 have no meaning at all. And so when we stop and we, we think about this, God has placed this scripture here for a purpose. Um, and, and that's what we're going to discover in the next several weeks together. Um, he has to deal with this subject. And he has to deal with it at this juncture in the book of Romans. Um, And and let me give you a little reasoning why. Um, Because Paul has learned throughout his teaching, he's taught these things before. Um, he's, He's learned what the objections to his teaching have been before. And so he knows what's going on in people's hearts as he's teaching these doctrines. 
And when he teach and teaches in here and he writes to the, the Romans through the inspired Holy Spirit, these are not things that, that Paul necessarily taught for the very first time. He taught in other places, but this is the first time that God actually had him record it. It was written down. And on other occasions, probably, when Paul taught justification by grace through faith alone, he faced strong objections. In other places where he taught the fact that God's salvation is forever, that it can't be taken away, that nothing will ever separate the redeemed one from his Redeemer, I'm sure he faced some strong objections as he taught these doctrines. And he learned that people have certain questions as a result of his teaching. And before he can move on in the book of Romans, he has to answer those questions that he knows are in the hearts of his hearers. And so he's learned that before leaving the subject of justification by grace through faith, he has to talk about these implications. There are some things that we have to discuss in the next three chapters. Um, and Paul, as you know, when you read Paul's writings, he's always very um, logical in his writing. He's very logical in his books. He'll lay something out and he'll say, okay, based on what I just shared with you, here's what you do next. He's like almost like a lawyer in a courtroom laying out a case. And so this mood shifts drastically from chapter 8 to chapter 9. Uh, there's, there's just this big mood shift. If you read the last verse of, of chapter 8, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You almost want to stand up and go, hooray! And then Paul starts out, and I'll read our text for us now, the first five verses. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have, look at what he says, great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my neighbors, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. These are Israelites And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, if you were just to continue on and read from the end of chapter 8 right into that verse, you kind of go, wow, what what God in his, you know, where's he going with this? Well, that's what we want to look at. It's a difficult passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks because some of it is difficult to understand, but then once you understand what Paul is teaching, some of it, to be honest with you, is difficult to accept. Romans 9 is one of the strongest statements on the sovereignty of God in the Bible. It really is. And there's a lot of people that struggle with that doctrine dealing with the sovereignty of God. They don't like the idea that God is sovereign and they aren't. They don't like the idea 
that it implies certain things regarding the human, as you hear it, free will. Well, we all got a free will. You hear that all the time. And so they try to explain away Paul's strong statements here in this chapter. And others, to be honest with you, get so carried away with God's sovereignty that they end up denying any human responsibility whatsoever. And so today I want us to look at it. It's there in your outline, but the Bible is clear that sinners... Or actually, it's not there. That we, We're not there yet. Sorry. But I, I want you to share, understand this. The Bible is clear that sinners are responsible to repent and believe in Christ. They're totally responsible to repent and to believe in Christ. But listen, when they do repent and believe, it is totally due to God's sovereign grace so that none may boast. Now, when you read that and you hear that, that you're, wait a minute, you're contradicting yourself. It may surprise you to hear that God's sovereignty is not necessarily the main theme here in Romans 9. But Paul brings it up to support the main theme. And so that's why here in Romans 9 to 11, it's crucial to the argument of Romans and to your life and to my life. That in in Romans chapter 8, Paul has given us this wonderful reassuring truth that whom God foreknew that he decided beforehand to enter into a relationship with. That's what that word means, foreknew. And he predestined to salvation those that will be saved and glorified them for all eternity. And the reason he did it was so that Jesus would have preeminence, that Jesus would be glorified, that Jesus would be lifted up. And so he ends chapter 8 with the strong assurance that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. But if you know anything about the Old Testament, if you study the Old Testament at all, that that raises a huge problem, a big problem. Because the Old Testament is very clear that the Jews were God's chosen people. Deuteronomy 7, 6, Deuteronomy 14, 2. You can read verse after verse where God, by his sovereign will, chose Israel as his people. God promised to bless them. And to bless all nations through them. Such a strong message there is that even if a nation turns against God's chosen people, they will reap the consequences. And beloved, our own country is very close to that line even today. But when Paul wrote Romans, most of the Jews, guess what? They were rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. And many of them were also persecuting people like Paul, who claimed that Jesus was their Messiah. So the problem is simply this. In the light of the Jews' rejection of Christ, has God's purpose to bless the Jews failed? That's the question. And if God's purpose for them failed, then how do we know that his purpose to save us is any good? How do we know that his purpose to save us will succeed? How do we know that nothing can separate us as his chosen people from his love in Christ if, in fact, the Jews are separated from Christ? That question basically will be answered in chapters 9, 10, and 11. 
And here's Paul's flow of thought. I'll just give you a kind of a, I was going to read all three chapters and I thought we don't really have time, but I would encourage you to go home and read all three chapters. But I'll give you a brief outline. So you take your Bibles and you can follow along. In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9, he affirms his heartfelt concern for the salvation of the Jews. He does this in part because many of the the Jews accused Paul, who was Jewish, right, of abandoning his own people for the sake of these despised Gentiles. And, And so Paul really affirms the privilege of having the the spiritual position of the Jews. He affirms that. But this raises the question in verse 6, has the word of God then failed? Paul's answer to verse 6 is verses 6 through 13, and basically the answer is no, because God has always worked through a remnant according to his sovereign choice. And then he goes on, he gives examples in those verses. Six to nine, he talks about he chose, what, Isaac, not Ishmael. He chose, verses 10 to 13, Jacob, not Esau. But then that raises the question in verse 14, is God unfair? So Paul answers that question in verses 15 to 18 by asserting God's sovereign right to show mercy to whom he desires and to harden whom he desires. But that raises a further question. Verse 19, chapter 9. If God is totally sovereign, then how can he find fault with anyone? Because who can resist his will? And Paul answers by saying, in effect, in verses 20 to 24, who do you think you are to question the sovereign God of the universe whose glorious purpose is far bigger than you could ever even imagine? And then he goes on in verses 25 to 29. He backs up what he has just said with Old Testament scripture to show that he isn't just making this up. He's not creating a story here. And then he ends chapter 9, verses 30 and 33 there by showing why Israel failed to receive the promise. And while the Gentiles did receive it. Then when we get to chapter 10... Verses 1 through 4, he says that the Jews were zealous to establish their own righteousness. But they miss Christ. Verse 4, who is in the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. Verses 5 through 13 of Romans chapter 10, he says salvation is available to all who will believe. But in spite of God's invitation, Israel, he goes on, he says, has largely rejected it. While many Gentiles have accepted it, as the Old Testament affirms. Verses 14 to 21 of chapter 10. So then in chapter 1, or chapter or verse 1 of chapter 11, he asks the question, does this mean that God has permanently, permanently rejected the Jews? No, just as God in the past has worked through a remnant, he is now working through a remnant, verses 2 to 10. But this is not the final picture. Since God has promised a glorious future for Israel, their present rejection of the gospel has opened up the door to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous, verses 11 to 16. 
But the Gentiles need to be careful not to become proud. If God broke off Israel for their unbelief, he could do the same with the Gentiles, verses 17 to 24. In fact, he again will show mercy to Israel, verses 25 to 32 of Romans chapter 11, so that all Israel will be saved. Now, that doesn't mean every individual Jew will be saved. That's speaking of the whole nation. Thinking about God's sovereign mercy over the course of history causes Paul to erupt in this final burst of praise for God's unfathomable wisdom in verses 33 to 36. And that's basically an outline of where we're going to be going. But today we're just focusing on verses 1 to 5. And this is really where Paul shows his heart for the lost, for the Jews who have rejected the Messiah. And so today we want to look at this. We should be burdened for the salvation of lost souls because the love of Christ and the love of God's truth compels us to do so. Um, we should be burdened for the salvation of lost souls because the love of Christ compels us. You may look at those thir- first three verses there and say, where do you get that from that? Well, I see it in a couple different ways. I think three different reasons why Paul's burden for the lost, you can see it for the lost of his, his, kins- for his lost kinsmen. Um, first of all, He's just finished in chapter 8, verses 35 to 39, talking about the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, and the gracious love that Paul had received while he was yet a sinner, all the way back to chapter 5, verse 8 of Romans. And that compelled him to want his countrymen, his fellow Jews, to experience that same love of God, that same forgiveness in Christ. Secondly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Verse 1, Paul tells us to imitate him just as he imitated Christ and that it was Christ's love that moved him to lay down his life for his sheep. Paul's hypothetical willingness here to be damned if it meant the salvation of the Jews reflects Christ's actual willingness to bear the wrath of God so that his sheep would be saved. Are we doing like a light show or what's going on back there? Third, we'll get all these bugs worked out eventually. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, in in an evangelistic context, Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. For the love of Christ controls us. So it's it's Christ's love that reached down to us in our sin. And it's Christ's love that should compel us to reach out to other sinners. With the good news of the gospel. With the hope and the trust that he will save them. Well, look at these four things here quickly. It's possible to have great sorrow over the lost at the same time we have great joy in Christ. I mean, when you look at Paul's first couple verses here, especially the second one, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. I mean, when you stop and you think about that, I mean, that's very descriptive 
of someone who's not doing too well. They have a burden, great sorrow, unceasing grief. This isn't because Paul was bipolar, okay? He wasn't somebody in chapter 8, now he's somebody else. That's not the case. But really, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, it says that he was as sorrowful, yet always, what? Rejoicing. See, it's possible, beloved, to be both sorrowful and yet rejoicing at the same time. When you look at Scripture, uh, Bob read one this morning, it's interesting that the shortest verse in the English New Testament is John eleven thirty five. Jesus what? Jesus wept. When you come to the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament, it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Rejoice always. See, if I just focused on the sad condition of lost people to the extent that I only had great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, I don't know about you, but I would be depressed. <coughs> I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. I wouldn't reflect the joy of the Lord each and every day. On the other hand, if I were so filled with the joy of the Lord continuously, and I never felt any sorrow, I never felt any grief for the lost, I would be a very, you might say, self-centered or calloused person. See, you need both the joy of salvation that, that moves you to want others to know that same joy, but you also, along with sorrow over the sad condition of the lost. It has to be a balance. That's what motivates us to reach out to them with kindness and with compassion. So you can have both the joy of the Lord and Compassion and sorrow for the lost. The second thing here is we should be especially burdened for the salvation of those with whom we share something in common. It's not to say that we shouldn't cross the social or cultural or, or ling- linguistic or national barriers to share the good news. <clears throat> How will such people hear the gospel unless someone goes and tells them, the Bible says? That's what he says in verses 14 to 15 of Romans chapter 10. And here you have Paul, this Pharisaical Jew, and he was called to be apostle to the who? The Gentiles. But it, but it is said here that, that God has given us a kind of a common bond with some around us. So it kind of makes sense that you would want to reach out to those people. You would want to communicate to them somehow the glorious gospel of Christ. Paul, being from a Jewish background, he had a great burden for his fellow Jews. Um, You cross that, that natural bridge to share the good news with the kingsmen according to the flesh, he calls them. And we should have that same, that same burden. We should have that same desire. It's not that you only reach people that you have a common bond with. 
But I thought it was interesting that there's a pastor, Tom Mercer, he wrote a book called Oikos, Your World Delivered. And it was republished um, 8 to 15, The World is Smaller Than You Think. And in this book, he talks about that each of us has 8 to 15 people that God has placed in our relational world. And through us, he, he, he wants to get the gospel out to those people. And so your homework is you identify those 8 to 15 people. And you begin to pray for them. And you begin to ask God for opportunities to show his love and grace to them, either in deed or word. And you say, well, you know, some of the people I know, some of the 8 to 15 people that I know are people that, frankly, uh, I don't want anything to do with because they've hurt me. What do you do about that? That leads us to the third point here. We should be burdened especially for the salvation of those who have hurt us the most. That's a hard truth. Because I don't know how bad someone hurt you. But when you stop and think about it, who was persecuting Paul? The Jews. (laughs) The Jews were persecuting Paul. They wanted him dead. But who was Paul most burdened for? The Jews. I mean, Paul would have totally related to us if Paul would have just put a verse in there and said, you know, just let them all go to hell. We would say, yeah. And we've all thought that at times about people. We think people deserve that. And then we quickly remember, wait a minute, so do I. (laughs) We all deserve hell. But see, instead, his heart's desire and prayer for them was for their salvation. Look at what he says in verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they, what? May be saved, not judged, not sent to hell. He wants them to be saved. Now, that doesn't mean you do something unwise and put yourself back, and if someone's really hurt you in a... In a inappropriate way, you go back into that relationship, whatever. I'm not saying that, but you still pray for that person. You would still pray that somehow God would would break through their heart, change them, transform them into what God wants them to be. That God maybe brings somebody into their life to uh, lead them to Christ. So it's, it's very important that we, we realize that some of the people we need to really have a burden for are maybe the people that hurt us the most. And something changes when we start praying for people that have offended us or have, have hurt us in the past. We start praying for their salvation. God, God removes that, that thing we're holding on to. Well, the last thing here, D, lost people won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. We hear that all the time. But it really captures the truth that comes out of verse 3. I mean, look at what Paul says in verse 3. For I wish that I myself were accursed. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm saved. I have my salvation. But you know what? I have such a burden for these people. I wish I could swap. I wish that I could go to hell so they could go to heaven. 
Wow. I mean, that's a crazy verse. Because I don't know about you, but I, you know, I don't often think about those things. You know, you're out witnessing or you're sharing with somebody um, the gospel. I don't, I don't think I've ever thought, man, I just wish I could go to hell so they could go to heaven. That hasn't even entered my mind, to be honest with you. So I'm not where Paul is here. I'm just, I'm just being honest with you. I got a lot of growing to do in that area. I could never even think of making a statement, even now, that I would make a statement like that. That I would be eternally damned if someone else could be saved. It's interesting because C.H. Spurgeon said this. He, he, he talked about how Paul, or how, Paul Bunyan, how John Bunyan said that he often felt while preaching that he could give his own salvation for the salvation of his hearers. That's how he felt. He often felt while preaching that he could give his own salvation for the salvation of his hearers. And then Spurgeon put this. He said, and I pity the man who has not felt the same. I thought, well, Spurgeon's had a lot of pity on me because I've never concluded that. Do I pray for lost people? All the time. Pray for them to come to Christ. I try to preach the gospel faithfully, diligently. But I just don't understand how anyone could say what Paul is saying here. I mean, I'd probably even be willing to give you a kidney or two. You know, or no, not two, but maybe one kidney. <laughs> I thought, I've got to pick the right organ here. You know, if I say heart, then I'm dead. That doesn't help me. So, you know... That's a noble sacrifice, but giving up your eternal salvation? Come on. I'm just not there. Um, and so God gives us the opportunity to share the gospel with the lost. And, and we need to be sure that we are willing to do just that. And, and with some form of burden, some form of compassion. Whether it's the degree Paul's at or not, I, I'm not there, but, I mean, maybe God will bring us there one day. But what's frustrating here is that he just finished saying in chapter 8 that it's impossible, right? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But here he's trying to convey how deeply he was burdened for the salvation of these Jews, one commentator translates this, this, this way. He says, Paul was almost praying like this, For I would pray, were it permissible for me so to pray, and if the fulfillment of such a prayer could benefit them. See, Paul knew that such a prayer was not permissible. And it wouldn't result in the salvation of the Jews. But he's showing how much he, he cared for the salvation of his lost kinsmen, the Jews. It's hard to square Paul's compassion for all the Jews with Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, which basically cites, he cites there in chapter, uh, or chapter 9, verse 15 of Romans. He says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. That implies that God 
does not have mercy and does not have compassion on everyone. And it was, it was shown by the subsequent plagues on the Egyptians. Okay, But the difference is God is God and we're not God. Big time. He is free to show his mercy to some and to harden others. And we're going to be looking at these verses in, in, the, in the near future. But we need to show compassion to all. Knowing that God will use the display of his love through us to save those who believe. And to judge those who refuse to believe. So we, we really want to pray that, that God would, uh, through the love of Christ, he'll control us in such a way that we will go out to this lost and dying world and be able to share the love of Christ in word and deed. And ask God to give you a burden for the lost, the lost that you run into every day. Well, verses 4 and 5 kind of deal with our, our second point here. We should be burdened for the salvation of lost souls because the love of God's truth compels us. See, Paul desperately wanted to see the Jews saved, not only because of his love for them, not just that, but he also wanted them saved because he loved the truth of God's promise to them. See, as long as they weren't saved, then God's promise was not being kept wasn't being fulfilled. He didn't want people to think that the word of God had failed. That's what he says in verse 6. So there's three general observations here. Our primary motive for seeing lost souls saved should be God's glory. Even beyond Paul's compassion for his fellow Jews here was his zeal for the glory of God. And that's really what he, he drives home here in chapters 9 to 11. These, these chapters are really a defense of God's word and God's glory against any problems that could undermine that. So God's main purpose for creating the world, beloved, was not so that we could be saved. That's not his purpose. The main purpose, the main reason God created the world was to display his infinite glory. It's all about the glory of God. And see, when we go out and we share Christ, it shouldn't be just about winning the lost. It should be, you know what? God is going to receive glory through this. Secondly, we should be especially burdened for the salvation of those who enjoy the greatest spiritual privileges. Think about the Jews, the Jewish people. They had very unique spiritual privileges, and yet they were still lost. And I guess what I want to communicate this morning is that great spiritual privileges will not save anyone. You can have all the spiritual privileges you want. You can have them coming out your ears. But unless you respond to them in a way that honors Christ and honors God, they're not going to do you any good. The Jews' reaction of uh, rejection of Christ shows that salvation is not just a matter of considering the evidence and making a rational decision. See, sometimes, you know, we can grow frustrated. You know, we have an uncle, we have an aunt or somebody in our family or whatever we're witnessing to, we're witnessing to, we're witnessing to. And sometimes I hear people say, you know, what's, what's their problem? Why can't they just get saved? 
I mean, can't they understand what's in front of them? Well, you know what? That, that's, that's basically relegating salvation to you know, their choice. And we've just gone through weeks of study saying, wait a minute, it's not all about our choice. God has a part in this as well. And I'd say he has a greater part than we do. The fallen human heart is spiritually dead. Remember when we went through that? Romans 3, Romans 8, the beginning. And see, the difficulty with a lot of people, to, just to be real frank, is that they trust in their religious privileges, not in their Savior. I mean, can you imagine the tragedy of being religious, religiously zealous, and yet you're still lost in your sin? Salvation is not a matter of spiritual privilege alone, but rather of God's sovereign grace that imparts life to a dead sinner. Well, how were the Jews privileged? I'll give you nine here quickly. First of all, they were Israelites. Israelites. The name focuses on the descendants of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. One commentator, Moo, says this, it suggests that people chosen by God to belong to him in a special way and to be the vessels of his plan of salvation for the world. So they were part of the nation of Israel. Secondly, their second spiritual privilege was they had the adoption of sons. Exodus 4, 22, Jeremiah 31, 9, uh, Hosea 11, 1. It doesn't mean that all Jews are saved. Rather, it means that it refers to God's adoption of this nation of Israel. Thirdly, they had the glory. It refers to the glory of God being displayed in their midst on several occasions. Fourthly, they had the covenants that God made with Abraham, Moses, and David, plus perhaps the new covenant. I mean, he didn't enter into any other uh, covenants with any other nations. It was just Israel. Fifth, they received the law. They were the receptors of God's law. And that law told them how they could live in a manner pleasing to God. Sixth, they received God's pattern of temple service. The way they were to worship. God revealed the various feasts and sacrifices and all this stuff that Israel was to observe. So they were part of the nation of Israel. They had the adoption of sons. They had the glory. They had the covenants that God made with Abraham, Moses, David, and the new covenant. They received the law. They received the pattern of God's temple service. They also received, seventh, God's promises, which covered all the covenant blessings. He didn't promise any other nation these things. He promised Israel these things. Eighth, they were descendants from the fathers of the Jewish faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You hear them say that all the time, our father Abraham, in the New Testament when Jesus was dealing with them. That was their religious privilege. And the last thing, ninth, they were the race from which our own Savior, the Christ, came. Okay, they came out of the Jewish line. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. They had all these privileges. But you know what? They didn't add up the dots. They didn't connect the dots. 
and see how do we apply that to us. You know, this applies to us if we were raised in a Christian home. Maybe you grew up in the church. I mean, do you, do you honestly realize how privileged you are? I mean, even here in America, to be able to come to a building on a Sunday morning, to gather as believers, to sing songs unto the Lord, to be taught the word of God, I mean, that's a privilege. You know, we, we forget that. There's countries in the world that they can't do what we're doing right now. They can't do it out of fear of their own lives. There are billions of people in this world who are separate from Christ. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They're strangers to the covenant of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2.12. So what a great spiritual privilege we have in Christ. But you know what? Those privileges can become liabilities very quickly. And those same privileges will testify against you in the judgment one day if you do not repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Because you know what? Being here this morning, hearing the words from God's word through the power of the Spirit, that's a privilege. What you do with it, that's up to you. I mean, I wish I could just, you know, pull you up front here, open up your, your head and shove the stuff in, and boom, you were saved. Can't do it. It'd be a lot easier. But see, there's also an application for those of us who have responded to God's grace. Don't assume that just because someone you know is a lifelong church member, or someone you know grew up in the Christian home. Well, they got to be saved. See, as a great, a great privilege as it is to be exposed to all these spiritual truths, each person individually must repent. Each person individually must believe for those privileges to become blessings. And there's a big difference. So you make sure that your family or your friends who grew up in the church, truly know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And it's evidenced by the way in which they live. It's, it's so sad. Within the church, we have so many people professing Christ. But I think not as many possessing Christ. Third thing here, the salvation of lost people requires that they come to know Jesus Christ as God in human flesh. Look at what he ends there in verse 5 at the end. He says, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God. There's a lot of debate on how to translate that part of that verse. Some people say, well, it should, it's not referring to Jesus as God. It's just referring to Christ and God. But a lot of people that are a lot small, smarter than me say, no, it's, it's referring to Christ as God. See, the, the early fathers who had native Greek language, that's what they, they spoke and studied and read. They understood it that way. Um. 
It's clearly a text where Paul is referring to Jesus as God. So the gospel is not this. And this is key when we go out and we share the gospel. What are we sharing with people? The gospel is not this, beloved. Believe in Jesus however you may conceive him to be. That's not going to work. That's not going to get anybody through the pearly gates. That's not going to get anybody's sins forgiven. Rather, it is this. Believe in the Lord Jesus revealed in Scripture, who is eternal God in human flesh, who offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins, and who was raised bodily from the dead. That's who they have to believe in. If they're just believing in in some other Jesus, that's not going to do them any good. I mean, you stop and think, the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, if you ask them, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah, we do. They'll tell you they believe in Jesus. But their Jesus is not the eternal Son of God. So their Jesus can never, ever pay for their sins. Salvation depends on believing in Jesus as the Lord, which means God. You can't separate those two. So I want to ask you this morning, are you burdened? For the salvation of lost souls. If you answer that question honestly, you probably, like me, say, "Eh, not as much as I should be, probably. Definitely never been burdened to the degree Paul was (laughs) that I'd be willing to give up my own salvation for the salvation of somebody else. I don't think I'm there yet. But we need to, and I want to encourage us as a church, to remember to pray for the lost. Get a little notepad out and write those 8 to 15 people that you have contact with. And if they don't know the Lord, you begin to pray for them. And by the way, if those 8 to 15 people are all Christians, and you don't know anybody else that's not a Christian, then you got a problem. You know, um, we need to get out and rub some elbows with the lost. There's a lot of different occasions to do that in different ways. Um, and I'm not talking about going out on a street corner necessarily and preaching. That's not a bad idea. You can do that if you want. I'm just saying, you know what? Be, be open to the divine appointments that God leads across your path on a daily basis. There are people who are lost, and when God realizes, you know what, first of all, you have salvation, and you're willing to give, give that salvation, you're willing to give that message of the gospel to others who are not yet saved, he will divinely bring people across your path. doesn't mean they're all going to get saved. We're not in the business of saving people. We don't save people. That's God's job. But he has called us to give the message of the gospel out to a lost and dying world and let the results to him. So pray for the lost, especially those you have frequent contact with. And when God gives you the opportunity, share the gospel with the lost. Pray for our missionaries. Pray that as they give out the word of God in their mission fields, that somehow it will be effective in activating salvation in the hearts of the people they're ministering to. Maybe there's some here even this morning that sense that God is calling you to some kind of a cross-cultural ministry somewhere. See, the love of Christ should compel us to do everything 
that he calls us to do. And the love of God's truth should compel us to have a burden for the lost souls that we see every day. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we pray that, that me- this message will create a burden in our hearts for those who are lost. Lord, we probably all know, know individuals who don't know you. And sometimes we feel because of maybe the friendship we have with that person or a relationship we have with that person, it's harder to share the gospel with them. But I know that if we're faithful to pray for their salvation, God, you will open up a door. Maybe it's not going to be us that shares the gospel. Maybe it's going to be somebody else. But, Lord, we have to pray with faith, believing that you've instructed us to do something that's not something in vain. That we need to be diligent. And our faith needs to stay strong. Even times when we're not seeing any results whatsoever. We pray, Lord, that you would do a work. That you would see many come to Christ. Through our missionaries. Through us as missionaries when we leave this room today. As we go out into a lost and dying world. That we would realize the importance of being equipped. That you would lay it on the hearts of us to make it a priority. To even practically, to, when we think about this class coming up the end of the month, what a wonderful way to be equipped to share your faith, to share our faith in a way that is effective. And Father, we pray that you would just uh, bless our time of fellowship over in the hall afterwards, bless the food to our bodies. And we pray now that you would just uh, close our time and uh, help us to go through this next week with a new vision of you using us to reach the lost here in the Bay Area. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.